Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Yes, yes, yes. And welcome back to the Fresh Arsenal podcast with me, PB. With me, JB. And we've got a returning pet. Uh, I think he was on episode nine back um, just before Christmas where we looked at some transfer possibilities for Arsenal. And he's back with us today. Hello, Pat. How are you doing? That was a really fun episode, actually. Really enjoyed it that day. Yeah, it's good. And uh, I would still recommend if people haven't um, listened to that to go and have a listen because I think a lot of it is still very relevant um it's all, it's it's coming relevant. true it's coming true as well well arsenal <laughs> they basically bought no one in january so all of our recommendations are still accurate <laughs> yeah well we got we got odegaard didn't we um which was sort of the the, the eight slash ten which we talked about so we're one step there but i think we talked about about four different positions and different players in that podcast so Go and have a listen if you haven't already. But today we're obviously here to talk about a massive win, a massive week for Arsenal since we last spoke to you. Uh, 2-1 winners yesterday against Tottenham, of course. And we're going to try and keep this bite-sized as as much as we would like to talk all day about such a magnificent week, magnificent day. Um, And I don't want the conversation to be dominated by decisions and, and by the Aubameyang situation because... It's such a positive day, and I think there's been enough of that narrative stolen from the likes of Jermaine Genus on Match of the Day and other uh, pundits. So, doesn't it just water it down so much when you have someone who's that biased? I mean, I know you've got guys like Martin Keown and John Hartson and, and loads of former Arsenal guys, Ian Wright, but like, I just, it just, it was really weird. I haven't watched mm. it, I've watched clips, but. My words, Jermaine Genus is a, is a strange man. I don't think Keown's the best rep for Arsenal either, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. I just don't get the point of match of the day, though. Like, they, they have pundits in the studio. They'll show the highlights. They go back to the studio, and all they do is just show you the goals again, right? They don't, they don't really analyse. Occasionally, they'll just draw, like, a line or tell you how far out a shot's been from or, like, run a little stopwatch for a counter-attack. <laughs> and the rest of it... It's just like, they just ask someone who's played for a club what they think of their own club, and then they move on. Like, there was no analysis on the game yesterday, but which was actually why. quite interesting tactically. <laughs> and it was just nonsense about a penalty shout that is not debatable. Like, it's the same, I mean, it's, not, it's like BT Sport, as an example, their pundits in the studio are quite good. But for every game, especially in Europe, the, like the main commentator is an ex-player of that club, mm. to the point where... Like, you might as well just be watching that club's, like, official channel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crap for anyone who doesn't support that team. But this mm. is why, this is why uh, we're in an era where mainstream media is no longer the sole dominator of kind of sports mm. analysis. And you've got TIFO football and you've got 
love them or hate them, Arsenal fan TV, and you've got all these other kind of um, green shoots of third party media that have been allowed to flourish, one, because of the internet and social media, but two, because people are fucking bored of hearing Martin Keown and how much he loves Emil Smith Rowe or how much uh, Jermaine Genus hates officials that give anything against Spurs. Like, I just think that's where we are. But again, that's for a whole nother podcast, isn't it? We're here to talk about mm. Arsenal Spurs. Yeah, no, you're right. And that you can get your real analysis on, on podcasts like these because <laughs> I think that I not all podcasts though. We're we're probably the, the best one out there. Oh, for sure. But I mean I, th- I you can count on one hand the number of good commentators and pundits across the channels. Um and I don't tend to watch much of the day to be honest. And when I hear reflections from, from people who do watch it and haven't had the chance to watch the full game, they always have a very different picture to how I saw the game. Um, I think their highlight selection is interesting. I mean, the commentator said when they were showing the the highlights that Arsenal had completely dominated the half, but the only highlights I think they showed in the first half for Arsenal were Smith Rowe hitting the bar and our goal, maybe one other, but they didn't show anything else. I think, I think that's what annoyed me so much, right? Like I don't really watch match of the day anymore because there's just so much football coverage everywhere the whole time. And like, especially if you're watching more games during the day, kind of tuning in post 10 o'clock for highlights as well. It's just a lot. And I thought I'd give it a go because obviously we'd won the North London derby. <laughs> I, I had to put up with Jermaine Genus. Like, I mean, basically cry, like throwing a temper tantrum on TV about nothing that I could figure out. In, it was, was like justified. He was just upset and was just raging about, like he had to go at VAR, but the ref gave the penalty on the field. He was crying about like, and then there was like no mention of the cane elbow. And then we went back to Genus and he was just like whinging about everything. And I was, it was just such a waste of time. Mm. I was just like, they've picked the weirdest things to analyze. They haven't looked at the game properly. And there's just like a grown adult, like just wetting himself on TV over refereeing decisions. <laughs> and that's the frustrating it's, part, isn't it? Like it's pathetic. You mentioned earlier, JB, that it was a really interesting tactical battle. And I was really surprised by both lineups. Like, I couldn't believe that Mourinho played Ndombele in a two. Um, I was certain that he'd come in with a counter-attacking mindset and that kind of Sissoko, Hoiberg, double pivot, playing Ndombele in the hole. And then you can let Kane, uh, Bale and Son do what you want. Or you maybe even don't start Bale. You play Bergman on the right to add like a third layer of protection for the right back because, you know, all of our attacking comes down the left. Um, And for us, like pretty surprised Smith Rowe came back in. In hindsight, looks like a masterstroke. Um, Loads of people were frustrated that Pepe didn't start. Um, especially because Saka's kind of dropped off a couple, uh, the last couple of days, uh, games. And then Abamyang, of course, not starting was the big one. There was so much to talk about. And yet, like it was dominated by pretty trivial things. But yeah, to me, it was like such a, a disaster class, really, of, of kind of game management uh, from the off by Mourinho. Like even, even like just before half time, um, I was certain he was going to do something to make it so. Uh, the right back Doherty was going to have more coverage. Even if he moved Hoiberg to the right side of the, the, the double pivot and just said to him, occupy that space and try and sit in front of him and try and help him as much as you can, or told Bale to just like sit back and not go forward or switched uh, Mora and Bale and put Bale in the middle. Like there was so much he couldn't do and he just didn't do it. It was so weird. It was so unlike Mourinho, wasn't it? It hmm. was, it, yeah, like obviously we watch a lot of Arsenal, but anyone who's watched us and you've seen other sides do it right everyone knows our threat is down our left and it's involving Tierney and it's the overlaps and it's the cutbacks and whatever we've got a threat on the right with Saka now but but most of what we do comes down the left and I just thought that either he would block it off like you said right using Sissoko or um he'd come in and and not use Bale I thought he might use Bergwijn or Lamella or even Lucas Moura on, on the right and have them track Tierney. Mm. And I don't know, I mean, I don't really care because I think he's an idiot, but like this was, this was a manager who was, I mean, I don't think he was confused. I think he probably, you know, you could argue that a less experienced manager felt the pressure to kind of keep playing the front three that had been scoring goals, but I don't think he's the kind of guy who behaves like that. He'll do what he wants to do. I think that he just got it massively wrong. And he played a team that wasn't set up to sit deep 
and he parked the bus. And maybe he thought, you know, maybe the plan was to press us from the front earlier, early on. And we ended up, maybe because of the players we had and maybe because of the players they had, we played a lot of football in their half. And that opportunity to press us and, and kind of coax those mistakes out of us, it just didn't, just didn't come about. So, yeah, I think he got it massively wrong. He didn't really change it. Um, and you know what? I, th- I think we also played really well. Um, I think it was a combination of the two, but I'm, I am stunned. I'm not surprised he parked the bus because I think that's exactly how he always plays against us. But I'm stunned that he didn't change at all. The Tierney mm. thing was like, if you are well equated with boxing, just watching a boxing fight and a fighter just not putting their guard up and getting consistently jabbed to the chin. It just felt like watching that. It was really weird. And you'd think in a, in a boxing match that a, a coach or a trainer would say, get your hands up. Mourinho <laughs> just never did it. It was so, so weird. But yeah, we, we played fantastically well. And that's obviously an, another thing we'll probably discuss, right? It was like we'd just taken Spurs' hand and we were hitting them. In the, just being like, stop slapping yourself. <laughs> stop slapping yourself. And they wouldn't stop slapping themselves. So we just kept doubling up on Doherty. And Bale had a lovely you know, front row view of the overlap every time. It also didn't matter, right? Like Tierney would do it, Smith Rowe would do it. They were just playing each other in behind all afternoon. It was really fun to watch. Um, Mm -hmm. But like, and the other thing, I guess, is once you get in behind the fullback, normally you'd expect the right centre-back to kind of come across and cover, but they've got Skodran's Mustafi's Colombian brother, Davinson Sanchez, just kind of, flopping and flailing about in that space like it's just he'll sprint over and then either i mean smith they went they all went past him like he wasn't there i don't really know what he was doing um all of IRL didn't do much he helped us nice little deflection for the goal went through his legs and then sanchez i don't think did anything other than throw his entire body into alex lacazette <laughs> to stop a one-on-one which apparently wasn't a foul because lacazette mishit the ball uh, that's another that's another conversation. So yeah, look, I think Spurs are shit and Mourinho got it horribly wrong. But I think we played really well, played to our strengths and actually played a lot higher up the pitch than we have done in a while. Mm. There's JB's match summary done in 10 minutes. And we've talked about match of the day, which I think needed to be discussed. But um, let's reel it back right to the start of the game. And we've said a lot about Spurs' lineup and how Mourinho approached the game. Without going into detail about Aubameyang, the Aubameyang situation and how we feel that was handled, because as I say, I think that's been discussed enough. How did you feel about the team when, when you saw he wasn't in it in terms of our chances and, and how we would approach the game? Because I think I was one of a few people to, to reflect on it before the game that actually, if we think about the Chelsea performance, which was the real turning point in this season, and we think about a recent big game where we performed really well, against Leicester both of those games or Bamiang didn't play so I, a lot of people were reflecting on, on my timeline anyway that sort of our chances were over when when they saw no or Bamiang there but um, I had a bit more confidence Pat how did how did you reflect on sort of our lineup when it came out I was a little bit concerned that we wouldn't have enough going in behind um, and I felt that a lot of our ch- well look before the game that's how I felt right I thought we would try and play on the break with, uh, you know, getting the ball into Odegaard really quickly or into Lacazette, him turning, getting out to Saka or Smith-Rowe and obviously Tierney on the left flank bombing forward and maybe Cedric being a bit more reserved. But I really, I I was a bit concerned that Lacazette would come really deep and we wouldn't have enough in behind. And obviously the way it panned out was we overloaded the left and when Lacazette came deep, uh, Smith Rowe came a bit more central or tried to spin in behind, behind the fullback and in between the space of the, the right back and centre back of Spurs uh, and try and occupy that space that maybe you'd have an Abamyang run into. Um, and the same would happen on the other side as well. You'd have you'd have Saka coming infield a lot to try and occupy and Odegaard getting beyond Lacazette to try and occupy some of those spaces that maybe you'd have a, a striker traditionally do. And I think what that actually did, which I thought would be a concern, was it meant that a lot of the times Davidson Sanchez, who you've called uh, <laughs> Colombian brother, and, um, and Alderweireld sometimes didn't have a player to mark uh, unless it was like a long ball from the, from the goalkeeper. And I think that's kind of difficult for a centre-half. And when you've got someone like Doherty, who is just getting shredded 
every single move down the left-hand side and you've got Smith-Rowe making those runs in behind, it was really difficult for Spurs to cope. And I think they looked really, really, really stretched considering how deep uh, Lacazette comes usually. And I, I don't know, like it, it, for me, it was really counterintuitive how we set up, but it seemed to really, really work. And uh, Smith-Rowe, when he's played on the left, has been a little bit more reserved in the past. Like he's drifted out into those spaces when he's been in the number 10 role and he's he's had some really good combination play predominantly in the middle, but also out on the left, where if we remember um, uh, the assist, I don't know who remember who it was against when he runs down the left and, and kind of does the little chop inside. And is it against Newcastle? It is against Newcastle, isn't it? Mm. Um, and like, Slack. I just, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I just, I don't know. It didn't, it didn't feel like it was going to work, but it worked really, really well. Yeah. I, I, I agree. If Spurs were going to play as we've seen them play in the last few weeks against some really poor teams, but I think if, they were going to do what they did do and sit really deep. We we sort of picked the players who would maybe unlock the team a bit better than uh, than Aubameyang is capable of doing. And, and that's not to say I wouldn't start Aubameyang at all uh, if he was available. But I didn't think our chances were gone, if you like. I, I do agree in, in terms of getting him behind uh, without Aubameyang. I think I said something about it put quite a lot of pressure on Saka. Uh, to produce those runs and produce those sort of shots because a lot of our other players don't shoot a lot. And that brings me into what I want to talk about next. Um, I think Lagazette had something like eight shots on the day. Um, no way. Was it actually that many? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, Are we uh, counting the one for the penalty? How many did he miss hit or like swing in the air? How many shots, not even on target, how many shots went in the direction of the goal? <laughs> I'll look it up. Oh, he had the sliced one, didn't he, from Smith-Rowe's cutback. <laughs> he had the one that he stepped over, which was so weird, by the way. I, I would say of eight shots, at least five went backwards. <laughs> I'll look it up. I'll look it up whilst we're talking. But what it links me into is a discussion on Smith-Rowe because I think we'd seen Lacazette hadn't had a shot for like four games or something a while, a couple of games ago. Um, and there was a real lack of shooting from this Arsenal team. And we noticed in the Olympiacos game, we obviously scored two long ranges. Smith Rowe hit the bar from outside the box yesterday. And the whole team seems to be shooting a little bit more than it was. And, and if we had Carl, I'm sure he would be able to tell us some advanced metrics on that one. But do you feel like we've sort of changed our... JB's just sent me a shot map for Lacazette. Apparently it's only five. I reckon they've not counted the... But still, five is a lot for, for Lacazette. Do you know what? You say we shot more, but I was really, and I don't know if you guys felt the same, but I was scared, and I was saying this to friends during the game, that we were getting a bit crossy. Like, we were getting a bit... The start, yeah. Yeah, the first 30 minutes, I was like, we're playing well, they're playing awfully, we're putting a lot of pressure on, we're getting into really good spaces, but not making many chances, and we're crossing a hell of a lot. And we're not crossing from, like, every time Cedric got the ball in the first half, he crossed it like every single time and we have no one in the box. And I was just kind of like, this is what they want and it doesn't feel good. Yeah. I did. I, to be honest, yeah, I do remember feeling the same way actually. And I remember thinking about how we approached the game um, at their place earlier in the season. And I wondered if it was some kind of weird tactical observation that they struggle from, from crosses. It's not something I think, but maybe so it I, seemed to be an approach. I didn't think that. And I'm going to maintain that I don't think that. However, I've looked it up. Tierney completed one of seven crosses in the game. Cedric completed zero of five. And Erdegaard completed zero of four. So clearly, we did attempt a lot of crosses. Um, but the reason I didn't feel that is because I think with the first, like, 20, like, we started really well. We came at them, right? And it was, it was with the ball. It was without the ball. We pressed them. They, I mean, they do not have good footballers, and they couldn't handle our press. Like, in any... In any part of the pitch, they couldn't handle it. Like that Smith Rowe chance came from us pressing. They kind of, we, we, we pounced on it out from the back. Uh, Erdegaard laid it off to someone. That guy gave it to, to Smith Rowe and he just rolled his foot over it first touch, hit the bar second touch. And the reason, mm. the reason I, I don't think, I didn't feel like we were crossy is because, first of all, a lot of them came from overlaps rather than like static situations. So they were kind of more of the, you know, on the run, trying to play it in behind the defenders' crosses. And the second was, um, and it's a bit of a, a pep-ism, 
was that the positional play, like the way we were set up, was a lot more counter-resistant. So even when they did clear it, it just went back to one of our players. Um, and, you know, I'm sure they were trying to do what they did in the first game. But even when they went long, like Louise and Gabrielle bullied Kane. Mm. So for the first mm. 20, 25 minutes, I felt like I was, we had really good control of territory and control of the ball. The worry was like, after that, there was about a 20-minute period, maybe a 15-minute period before they scored, where like those, we, we stopped getting those chances. We mm. stopped controlling the territory as much. They had a couple of other, just like nothing breaks, but you always knew a dive or something was around the corner. Um, mm. You know, like every time one of their players was isolated, they'd just go down and get a free kick. Like That's how they play. But it's so frustrating. Um, and thankfully, it didn't hurt us. But yeah, I, I thought we played well. And actually, it's, it's, quite, it's quite an interesting one because a lot of our good chances, once they sat deep, we created these mini transitions or mini breaks. And the one thing that two-on-one against Doherty did was it, it allows you to create chances that are like transition chances because you've got a defense that's set. But as soon as you get round the fullback, they all have to adjust and drop a bit deeper again. And then suddenly, but you have, you know, the only reason the cutback's on is because the ball in behind the centre-backs is on. Mm. And that Erdegaard cut, um, goal comes because the centre-backs choose to cover the six-yard box. Mm. They've dropped back and the cutback's on. So, yeah, I mean, I will, and, and I, that probably does count as a cross, right? Like, I, I'm not super worried about how we were creating chances because mm. I think the way we were getting round them on both flanks, because on the right, like, Erdegaard played on the right for a lot of it. So we had Erdegaard... Saka and Cedric on the right and we had Smithrow and Tierney on the left and we were just getting around them every time. I was going to ask you guys whether or not you thought the uh, David Luiz Gabriel partnership was the one that you would have picked because I think there were a few people No thinking... way. No way. I was just <laughs> like game over. If it, it, like I was like they're going to hit us on the break they're going to do exactly the same thing. I, I think I wrote like professor retreat or something about David Luiz. <laughs> I was like I cannot handle him <laughs> running away from Son again. Terrible idea. Pick he, him he, and, he, and, and crazily, like he seemed to be our only competent player in the last 15 minutes. Like every single really person lost their heads. I, I couldn't believe though that he was going so mental at everyone else. I'm thinking, David, you... It was performance. He was doing game. it for show. He <laughs> yeah, was doing it for, for show. Sure. But like they needed someone to shout at them. I thought Partey yeah. like really drifted in the last 10. Cedric too. I think they were both on that side, which made it harder because <laughs> they were on top of each other. There were a few um, times where the ball went over to Cedric in the last 50 minutes. And I'm just thinking, hedger it towards Pepe. So even if they nick in and get the ball, you are, you are trying to stop the ball being progressed from the flanks. And every time he headed it infield, which was really weird. And it I mean, went yeah. to their centre-backs or their central midfield. There's a few times where it just head it towards Pepe. He might try and get a throw. He might even compete for it in the air. Just, just try and manage it well. And they just lost their heads. But also, like, just, like, put it behind the fullback. I know it's, it's not Sunday League football, but it's worked for us really well this season. Like, just putting a little ball over the top behind the fullbacks, it moves everyone up. Too many times, like, we chose not to go at them towards the end and, like, just invited pressure by doing that. Oh, for what sure. Did, just, just on that, right? Like, I mentioned Pepe. What did you guys think of him when he came on? Because for me... It's the Pepe segment. Ollie, you ready? <laughs> Sorry, but, like, for me... We need right, a jingle. For me, I actually thought he was quite poor, apart from the pass. Like... I, I know that's Apart quite... from the pass that won the game. Sure. <laughs> right, yeah. I thought the pass was amazing. In, in fact, I thought it was so good. I just presumed Odegaard played it. <laughs> um, but I thought there were so many opportunities that he had, maybe three or four off the top of my head, where he was isolated with either Alderweireld or Regulon on the right. And it just felt like he could have done a bit more. And I think that's probably because maybe he's not as confident because he hasn't started after doing really well. And I actually really like Pepe, by the way. Um, I just I was quite frustrated watching him when he came on in terms of the the final third. I thought he was fine, kind of uh, in transition, uh, in uh, kind of our own half, helping out, and even in the middle third. But in the final third, it just felt like there was a bit more that he could have done to really help kill off the game. Do you know what I think? I think the 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 right side, both him and Saka, struggled a little bit because I think yeah, definitely their tactical approach was even though we've said that our left side is really strong, I think they've just seen how good Saka's been, and they focused on on defending that right side. So I think there was a lot of scenarios where Pepe 
found himself just just him on two players or or maybe two of us on three players, whereas on the left side we were outnumbering them a little bit more. Um, so I think it was difficult set up as it quite often is to be honest for our right hand side um for both Pepe and Saka yesterday but I mean that brings me on to what I've remembered I wanted to to bring up earlier that we're not relying on Aubameyang he didn't play we're not relying on Saka he didn't have the best half and and you know he came off at half time we've had some other players step up to the plate and I think a big discussion point for me and and I wrote an article on it earlier um is about Odegaard and Smith Rowe I think there was a lot of lazy analysis from from pundits. Again, going back to the mainstream TV discussion, a lo- Arsenal was sort of bashed for the the Odegaard signing on loan as if it was going to stop all the progress Smith Rowe had made. And I think this game just illustrated how that's complete nonsense. Um, we've seen them, you know, we mentioned it on the pod when he was signed. That there's no reason they can't play together. Odegaard can play in a few positions. Smith Rowe, I thought yesterday, I'd never seen him so quick he, he was really running at a pace which I, I didn't really know he had um, and equally whilst they can play together I think the ability to rest Smithrow in the week um, and obviously whilst he's been out injured before that and and have someone like Odegaard to come in and then Smithrow come back fresh because he wasn't playing like he did yesterday before he got injured you know mm. so, so it's absolutely crucial um, that signing him just wondering what you thought, um, JB, or, or, of the the duo and how they linked up. Because there's also been a bit of a campaign for Pepe to to start, which I get. Um, but I think, as I've tweeted, they, I, I just think Arteta wants a Saka Pepe on the right, and on the left he wants a right-footed playmaker, which he views as Smith Rowe, and the backup there is is more naturally Willian than it would be Pepe. So. Just on your reliance point, I would say that the only player we actually appear to be reliant on is Tierney. Uh, I think we've, we've shown that we're not not the same team with without him. Um, I think that Erdegaard and Smith-Rowe have, both have a level of technical security that we don't really have elsewhere in the squad. Mm-hmm. They both take up positions between the lines, move it quickly, um, Erdegaard's more of a passer Smithrow is probably more of a combination player and off the ball mover but but phenomenally powerful player as well um, in fact the one area I didn't think he had the power in his game yet was the striking of the ball um, probably more passing than shooting like we've seen him hit some really good shots he's more of a pass, short passer isn't he yeah I haven't I haven't seen that kind of long pass and the there have been a few times when he's had to hit those KDB kind of hard low crosses and he just hasn't got the power on it. But, mm. you know, he, he's a hard striker of the ball. But like look, yesterday, Erdegaard completed 56 of 58 passes, Smith Rowe 36 of 37, right? And that includes four chances created with Smith Rowe and two for Erdegaard. Yeah. So they're not just like sitting there, you know, playing pretty for passes, right? They're knitting stuff together and they're getting on the end of stuff. Mm. And I agree, right? I don't think it's individuals that Arteta wants in the team. It's, it's roles and styles. I'm a bit less yeah. worried about who plays in the three behind the striker in general because I think it's horses for courses. What I would say is, especially when you have a ba- um, Lacazette playing instead of a Bamiyang, you need at least two of those three to be able to run in behind and run onto things. Mm. And Saka has, has, has developed that ability and shown it this season that he can do it. Um, Smith Rowe, you know, we talked about as a guy who could get on the end of stuff, but actually has shown a very good willingness and ability to run the channel, like he did against Newcastle, like he get, did against Chelsea. Um, mm. and, and to be honest, I can see, and maybe we'll get on to him, I can see Martinelli doing similar in future. And it's just that, like, relentless desire. And I don't want to use the word desire, so let's edit that out. The relentless... Um, appetite to just like make that run in behind whether the ball's coming or not because you know you're going to make space for someone else so look I think it's really encouraging I think that that left-sided playmaker role it's a role where you can probably have a few like you could have a more traditional winger there um like you could have a a Nasri but you could have like a nanny type player there still and still get that in certain games. Um, mm. 
I think I think it's and you can you can play Smith Rowe in the middle and and play Saka or Aubameyang or Martinelli on the left. So we've got optionality there, which which helps. But I think it is, I think with Arteta's rotation, it's more about play style and like what he wants in the game than like just rotate rotating to keep players fit. Which yeah. is probably why players end up playing a lot when you think, oh, where's the rotation? I think he's just desperate to dominate games at the moment, and I think his team selection since Christmas has, has illustrated that and those passing stats that you said are, are phenomenal that that's both at about a 97 percent pass completion rate which is was the best on the pitch by a few percent which is crazy when you've got you know center midfielders the likes of Xhaka and you got center backs passing to each other all game and what made it even better was Odegaard in the final third completed 28 out of 30 in the attacking third which is ridiculous I mean, the next highest was Smith Rowe on 17, which which is still really good. But I think that level of technical security Odegaard has, has brought just highlights that we, you know, you need a couple of those in the squad. They don't have to start together all the time. But I thought the way they combined and, you know, that trio, the potential of that trio, if we can sign up Odegaard permanently, Odegaard, Saka, Smith Rowe, um, you know, all... Well, I think the other thing with well, the thing, Odegaard's 22, right? And like he's come mm. into this team from Real Madrid, and people are treating it like he's some experienced, like seasoned pro who's yeah. expected to come and contribute every week. Mm. There's a maturity to his game that is beyond his years. And I know we say the same about Saka and Smith Rowe, but like maybe it's because he's come from from somewhere else. But like Odegaard just doesn't feel like a prospect. He feels like a first team player. Well, I mean, which look- is really good to see. He did. He did. He was the best player by distance in a Sociedad team that came. Was it fourth or fifth mm. um, the other year? So, like, this isn't a scrub. And I think, like, when it was really funny when he got loaned, um, a lot of my timeline was like, "Oh God, like, is it going to be another Denis Suarez?" And it was the classic kind of Premier League fan who's never watched mm. another league type tunnel vision. A lot of my friends were like, "Oh, you know, I don't know if he's got the pace and power for the Premier League." And I was just like, "Guys." David Silva dominated this league for 10 years, basically. You've got Bernardo Silva. You've got Gundogan, for example, who's probably going to be nominated for PFA Player of the Year. You've got Bruno Fernandes, who, who isn't exactly like a pace and power merchant, doing really well in the Premier League. Like, this is, it's not a cut and dry thing that every player has to be physically like elite to be really good in the Premier League. It's also about how smart you are and good you are on the ball. And like, there are some things he does and his touch is almost always perfect. Um, and, uh, like there's a really good article, I think from, uh, I think it's the telegraph. I haven't really read all of it, but seen some snippets about how he like led a lot of our pressing and a lot of our defensive efforts in the, in the final third. So although he doesn't look like he's running really fast or powerfully, he can one get past players, which I think Mm -hmm. he, he showed that quite a lot in the Spurs games. I think he had a few people on, on skates and then on the defensive side of things, off the ball, sometimes we actually turned into kind of a four-four-two, and he was often the instigator of the press. And I think it worked really well. He was predominantly mm. pressing in kind of the the middle to to right areas of the pitch. But I thought it was it was great. Yeah, I was going to say it, it's more lazy analysis from the pundits to to see a sort of young player from Spain and think that they're going to be weak and He's defensively Norwegian. inept. Yeah, but from the Spanish league, Jamie. Um. <laughs> But I think yesterday, I'm just looking now, he made three tackles and, and I thought just in all the physical duels, he threw his weight around and, you know, he's not a tiny player. I think he's, he's about 5'11", isn't he, or something. So I, I think he uses his body really well um, and he's just a, a special player and I think he's warming up. And, his you know, his feet and his balance are really good as well. Like he's got really mm. quick feet. It's the one thing about, and I, people keep comparing to Ozil, right? And I, I think this is going to happen until the end of, Odegaard's time until he changes at Arsenal. His name. Until he changes his name, basically, yeah. Um, like Özil didn't really have the, the the same quickness in his feet, uh, and I think his balance was good, but it isn't quite the same. That low center of gravity that Odegaard has um, is is quite sensational. Like he is really really good. I hope that we sign him, but I am really scared that he is almost going to play so well that he becomes out of budget. Like it's warming up too fast. It, it really is and like what I was thinking the other day is 
I was saying to my mates, literally after his first, like before he signed, I was like, I hope we get him for like 25 million pounds in the summer. And they were like, no way, like need to see how we go, blah, blah. And I was just like, but you have to kind of sometimes take a risk. And I do think that if he continues playing this way, we are going to be looking at, uh, he's got two years left on his deal, I think in the summer, but that I think he is still going to command like a kind of 40 million euro fee at this point, like the way he's playing, Mm. which is quite concerning to me. I think well, it's, the, it's one of those where, like, it was always, if he was going, if he was too good, we wouldn't be able to get him, and if he was crap, we wouldn't want him. And you need him to be in that middle ground. Yeah. So yeah. I'm hoping we get, basically, get to the point where the league's gone, and then we can just convince him to have some stinkers in the league. I mean, the <laughs> ideal thing is we can get him for another 12 month loan, and then buy him when he has. A year I can left on really, his deal. I can really see because, like, when you're looking at the yeah. deals, the business we need to do in the summer. Finding money for Erdegaard or finding money for a 10, like we need to spend that money, but that's like the most expensive position we need to invest in. Mm. And I just think another 12 month low, like if Madrid extend his contract and he comes back for 12 months, I feel like that's just suits everyone. And Madrid, they, they didn't want to put a clause in, did they? Cause they, Zidane doesn't particularly like him, but they, um, they don't know whether Sudan will still be there. So I imagine that will drag on and, and they could well look at another loan like they did, obviously, um, for Ceballos. But I think yeah. worst case scenario, we're all talking about if he plays too well and we can't get him, it's terrible. I mean, he still added, he still saved this season. We were like 15th when he arrived. And you know, now we're 10th. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we could get to the Europa League spots, which, you know, it's not We're looking up, but... not down these days. Come on, JB. Yeah, but I mean, like the financial. I'm looking up as, as a small man. <laughs> the stuff involved financially, though, it will definitely be worth the loan if he contributes to get giving us Europa League football versus what seemed impossible to get that when he arrived. And he might help us win the Europa League, you know, if all goes well. And I think ultimately, even if that, even if both of those things don't happen, what he's done is shown what a player of his ilk will add to this team and to this system because. You know, before he he's not like directly replaced anyone. I know we had Ozil, but Ozil wasn't playing, so he's come in and shown what I think. You know, having more playmakers and more technical ability in that final third can do to a team. So I think but, that's. But really also, cool. like I'm not. You know, if he does reach his potential, forty million euros for a player. No, it's not a bad investment. Of that level is not a bad investment. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what. Spurs played for Lacelso, granted not in a pandemic period, but and like, Sanchez and Sanchez, right? I mean, we played it for Mustafi, but I, I want to talk about something really, really quickly because a lot of the passing maps are, are very left-sided, heavy, right from from the game. And Xhaka and I thought Xhaka was fantastic. I think it's, I mean, I think he's been really, really good, especially the last twenty games, apart from the crazy mistakes, uh, which are two of them probably. Um, him and Gabriel, their ball progression, I thought was absolutely key in this game because especially Gabriel from the back, the way he uh, came out and intercepted the ball, but also from the, the left centre-half spot, those balls that he played either infield or out to the flanks were really, really hit with just the amount of like pace to get a player moving forward, if that makes sense. Sometimes you see a centre-back play a ball infield or... Uh, out to the flanks and there's not quite enough on it and the player has to come in and like control it then play it back or or turn try and turn the defender but like there were so many of his passes that were like crisp enough that it just kept the move flowing I thought those two were fantastic and especially as party tired which was so so visible by the way it was almost as if like it got to minute 58 or 65 and he just stopped playing football and you could see it. His legs were so heavy. And um, you saw it actually sometimes in the last 50 minutes where Xhaka got isolated with Lucas Moura one-on-one. And I remember screaming at the TV being like, this is bad. This is bad. Please someone stop it. Lucas Moura 1v1 v Granite Xhaka. And it ended up in him getting yellow card and, you know, potentially could have had another one if he wasn't careful. But in those situations, you think, right, well, the other centre mid maybe drops off a little bit and covers the spe- some of the space in behind uh, and tries to support him. But he, he just didn't have the legs in the end party. It was really concerning. I thought Xhaka was fantastic. Um, yeah, I, think- I mean, I, so I agree Xhaka's been great, right? Um, and I was, I was trying to figure out, and I don't know where I am on this, right? I, I thought Xhaka looked better than party for quite a lot of the game on, yeah. on Sunday, yesterday. Um, 
But I also can't work out if he looks better than Party. Stop. Or if he looks this good because of Party. Mm-hmm. And it's probably a bit of both. But hasn't yeah. hasn't this? I, I guess that's I think what this, a partnership is, right? I think this narrative of like Xhaka only being good next to Party is a bit strange, though. And I'm not saying that's what you're saying, but a lot of people on Twitter are just like, "Oh, well, of course he's playing well now. He's got like a world class central midfielder next to him." But he has been very good with Sabayas before. He's also not been very good with Sabayas before. Like, is there a correlation that he's more? He's, he's good more often with party, possibly, but I don't know if it's the sole reason. Like, I do, I do think there is just a, my synopsis anyway is, or my theory is anyway, he is just playing at a better level and he is just becoming a better central midfielder that is doing what, um, what Mikel Arteta wants him to do. And now look, on the podcast that we did, episode nine, I, I said I'm a big fan of Xhaka. He's a really good player. Um, He's been inconsistent at times and has made crazy mistakes, which I think he's trying to cut out. Um, and I think that he is good enough to get us into the top four, but our long-term ambitions, he should be the third best central midfielder at the club. Fair mm. enough. And I think if there was an offer in the summer for like 25, 30 million pounds for someone in Germany, I think we'd probably take it if we didn't have Sabahis going back to Spain and potentially shifting Elneny. But at this moment in time, I do think he's our second best central midfielder. Sometimes he's our best central midfielder. And I kind of see him probably staying here for the foreseeable future. But I thought it was really good. And I think, yeah, Party, I'm a huge, huge fan of. Um, and I think he's going to be really, really good for us long term. I do think we need to be super careful of how, how we manage him because he looked super tired in those last 20 minutes, especially. And I do think that we need to yeah, definitely rest him against Olympiacos and, and possibly only give him, you know, 60, 70 against West Ham as well. Yeah. The, the only challenge with, with Jacker is, and, and I heard this on one of the other pods and I thought it was a really well put point is like, he's a bit of a diesel engine in that he's probably at his best when he just keeps running, yeah. like play him every game. Whilst we he's good prob- at not making crazy mistakes. Yeah, but like we need to upgrade that position. But is he the kind of player who can come in for the odd game and yeah, play well? That's a very good point. I was going to say that. I think, um, look, I think Saka deserves credit. Uh, I've been one of his bigger fans when he was even wasn't so good. And I think he's he's got better since then. And he said himself, he's he's feeling the best that he, he has physically. I think, you know, he's never going to be the most mobile player, but mm. I think he's looking a bit more mobile. And I think he's increased the speed of which he does things, which is crucial in the Premier League. And I think, you know, Partey's presence, whether that's on the pitch or just in training, I think has helped him increase his speed of thought, yeah. to be honest, because I think he's, He's always been the conductor, and, and what you what you touched on there about can he be the third choice midfielder? I'm not sure he can. I mean, there was a there was mm. a bit of a spell when he was dropped out of the team. I think we remember everyone was talking about El Nene as the savior after that um, <laughs> Man United, United game. game when 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 Partey himself said you know he was at his best in that game, um, and I think Jack had dropped out of the team for a few games, and when he came in, looked terrible because he was sort of out of his rhythm. Yep. Uh, you know, he wasn't the, the chief guy in the middle. We're starting to see, I, I wondered if he could even work with Partey because they, they both sort of want to set the tempo, but I think we're seeing now that they can. Um, but in terms of him being a third choice, I'm not sure. Mm. And yeah, I mean, I agree with what you guys are saying. I think the, the likes of Xhaka, the likes of Louise, the likes of even Bellerin, they're good players. They can get us to a certain level, but I think, you know, they've all been around for a few years. They are why we're a top six, top eight, mm. top 10 club. I, I, think. Do, I do think, though, there is, like, the contribution of those types of players is still a bit disparate. Like, I think Shaka has contributed way more than, say, Bellerin. And I think Louise has contributed yeah. more than Bellerin, for example. I'm not necessarily saying. So you're, so you're saying you hate Bellerin? Is that? I, I, no comment. Um, I was trying to be is... balanced. <laughs> there is. I just there love. Is... You've just picked on two players. You've got this guy's played better than Bellerin, and then this guy, he's played better than Bellerin. the whole squad. <laughs> I, I just wanted to say one one last thing, right? Like, I know we have to wrap up quickly, but um, Bird Leno, right? I think has it is... played better than Bellerin. Yeah, he's, he's played better than Bellerin, but I think Leno has already has also played better than Leno before, if that makes sense. Like, 
it's getting to the point now where like my heart sinks every time he's on the ball and that's a really horrible thing to say and i also think um i know it doesn't matter now but maybe this is something that they pick up in training he was really suspect for both the offside goal that kane scored and the free kick i thought they were both like i, I don't know what was going on there he was on at sea for both um and i do i, I know he's not in the category of like granite Xhaka, where i think he's better pound for pound like in their own positions than Jacker is for sure and I think he's better than Bellerin and I think he's better than Louise in their respective positions but I do think long term if Arteta wants to play the way that he wants to play and we want that type of keeper I do wonder maybe not this summer but next summer if it's a position that we look at which is as, as weird as it is to say but like it, there are there are enough there is enough evidence there to say that he might not be the type of keeper that Arteta wants to build from. I completely agree, but I think it's about priorities, right? Absolutely, and absolutely. It's just, like we need a new right back, a new left back, a, a right back, side a centre mid, back, a striker, two, a ten, a striker, like you know, a new mascot. There's a lot we need to do in the summer and. It just feels like, you know, if someone in Germany, it's also not a good time to sell, right? Because Leno's probably got, he's probably an attractive buy for someone, but we're not going to get 20 million for him this year. No. Um, which just, is bizarre because he should be worth more than we paid for him in a, in a normal market. But yeah. Just the last one. Apparently, uh, Doozy is going to have a big, big interview on uh, in France tomorrow. Um, and apparently he's going to talk about Arteta, Emery, and much more because he's been Isn't announced this, as the because he's under twenty one's captain. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. That's going to be interesting. Oh. He's just a twat, isn't he? Sorry, I'll leave on that note. Yeah. It's just a shame because, like, if he didn't speak, we could sell him for a lot. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure someone will buy him for like seventeen million euros in the summer or something like that. Is he going to comment about his current manager as well? Then, if he says something bad about Arteta, because his, his current manager on loan has um, pretty much said the same things that. Arteta. Uh, apparently Arteta, Unai Emery and much more discussed. I don't know, that's from Gret Get French Football News, right? So mm. I don't know if that's that's going to be... Uh, I, I, like, surely even Ganduzi isn't enough of an idiot to say something bad about his current... <laughs> He'll say good stuff about Emery, right? Because the guy played him every week. I can't imagine he'd be dumb enough to say bad things about Arteta. Because even if he wants to leave at that point, he's basically putting like a big red flag on his own head. Saying like, don't sign. He's already sign got this guy. two red flags though, right? <laughs> three. At Lorient, well, yeah. Four. Three now. Lorient, the... PSG, Arsenal. And some now... argument ahead to bet. I mean, yeah. he's gone four for four. <laughs> All we need now is like. Just a... needs to get him back to to Villarreal. French with, national um, team. With which Emory, obviously, yeah. the French national team is famous for never having any player issues. Yeah, yeah. Well, who's going to be stripped of the under twenty one cap? Who season? threw the stopwatch at the World Cup? Uh, was it Willy Sanyol or am I making this up? What, where, where there was like a revolt? Was that led there was, by like yeah, yeah. Ever and the Anelka, boys? When Anelka went home and then <laughs> I, I just like also have you seen with the under 21 Euros they're playing like the group stages this month and then the actual tournament in the summer. That's so so there's two chances for Genduzi to cause, ha cause chaos. <laughs> Also, on the, yeah, I was about to say on, on the positive spin of that is uh, tracks and buyers. Yeah. Well, let's see. Let's see what comes from it. That's the headline at the moment. Hopefully it's nothing too damning on us. If it is, you can read it on fresharsenal.com. <laughs> Shameless plug. Just my two pence on Leno because I actually, um, I really like him. I get what you mean. And I think I said when, when there was a bit of debate over which keeper to sell in the summer, I think I said, I'm not sure either are the one that, that um, Arteta actually wants long-term at the club, which sounds a bit crazy because they're two of the, the better keepers in the league, in my opinion. Um, but I think we're quick to forget that Leno is arguably player of the season. I don't know if it was last season or, or the one before, but he's always, for me, he's always been like our top three um, players of the season for the last few years. And he's saved us quite a lot. Um, I think he's going through a bit of a shaky spell, like any player, because those you know, the Burnley incident, the incident at Olympiacos was almost certainly his fault at Olympiacos and definitely partly fault, his fault at Burnley as well. So, you know, when any player makes a couple of mistakes, a couple of games in a row, I think they're less confident to come for crosses in the situations like you talked about, Pat. So I think he's in a bit of a shaky spell. 
luckily the team's winning during that spell, which is always good when someone's struggling. And um, yeah, I think look, it's definitely not something we need to look at this summer, as you've both said. Um, let's see how he does next season. Anyway, we've been uh, going about 45, 50 minutes, I think. So we'll, we'll call it a day there. Um, that's, a, that's a Lacazette 90. That's what that is. <laughs> or a party at this rate. <laughs> that, that's another discussion. We won't go down that rabbit hole. Um, so we have now two games before an international break. So we've got the second leg of Olympiacos on Thursday, where hopefully we'll see Arsenal progress into the quarterfinals. And then we've got West Ham away on Sunday, which is a pretty big game, really, because if we, if we mm. were to win that uh, and go into the international break, you know, I'd, we may well still be in 10th, but in terms of the points tally closing in on sort of the top six area, will be pretty close. So another big week for Arsenal. Um, and then we've got Liverpool when we come back from the international break. Might not be good because they would have had a little break. Exciting stuff. Yeah. But anyway, we'll call it there. I've been PB. Thanks for joining us. I have... You threw me off with the thanks for joining us. <laughs> I have been JB and I will be next time as well. Yeah, you can find me at Petberisha, P-E-T-B-E-R-I-S-H-A on Twitter. Yes, and that's reminded me to plug the, the podcast Twitter, which is at Fresh Arsenal Pod, and you'll find me and maybe some more of us doing some little instant reactions um, straight after games. So make sure. Are we going to share those little sound bites and, and things like that? From this pod? From, from this pod and from others? Yeah, we'll try. So yeah, we, we, we clip some of the stuff in here. Uh, and, and also share that on Twitter. So if you're not always able to listen to the full podcast, make sure you're following us on Twitter and you'll be able to see that as well. Well, it's been a really good week to be an Arsenal fan and I've seen a, a lot of people say, you know, sort of say we can't be happy about this. We're still 10th in the table, but I just want to encourage everyone to enjoy the week, enjoy the fact that we've had some really positive results. We, you know, it's easy to forget that just before Christmas we were sort of 15th, 16th from the table. So to be within touching distance of the top six didn't seem like it was going to be remotely possible at that stage. We were pretty much halfway through the season. So we've got to look at it in terms of what we've done since Christmas. We're not going to get, you know, top four. We're not going to win the league this season, but we're still in the Europa League going well. And we've seen lots of signs of positive trajectory for this club. So let's enjoy the week and let's look forward positively for the Arsenal. Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.